even if it's not the perfect window of eating, I would still say having a consistent eating window with at least a 12-hour daily fast is going to be better than not. As far as trying to optimize it, very early eating, very late eating are both bad things. You should be eating really when you're active. So that usually means waiting to eat for an hour or two after you wake up, and then that's when you would have the first thing of your day, eating throughout the part of the day where you're active, and then stopping eating for about three or four hours before you go to bed. And if you're in bed for at least, hopefully eight hours, or at least at rest for eight hours, and then you don't eat for three hours before bed, and you eat after the first hour you wake up, you're already at a 12-hour eating window. That's Dr. Emily Manoogian, a world leader in studying circadian rhythms and specifically how meal timing affects our health. And this is episode 114 of the Proof Podcast. Howdy, friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. I hope you've been keeping well. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill and I'm your show host. It's great to have you join us and I hope that after today's episode, you feel inspired to become a regular listener. By way of background, let me tell you a bit about myself and the aim of this show. I'm a qualified nutritionist and physiotherapist and created plantproof.com and the Plant Proof social media pages to help people better understand nutrition science so they are in a better position to confidently make healthier food choices for themselves and their families. I also think it's important that we understand where our food comes from so we understand what we are supporting with our dollars each time we go to the grocery store. I myself follow a completely plant-exclusive diet But let me tell you from the outset, one thing I always like to make clear is that anyone who is eating more plants, regardless of the label they adopt, is part of the solution, not the problem. We're all on the same team here, so I'm very much in your corner, no matter where you are with your diet. All right, your time is precious, so let me introduce today's guest, Dr. Emily Manoogian. I'm sure that you are well aware that the type of food we eat and how much we eat directly affects our health, but you might not be aware how influential meal timing is when we eat our food. Have you ever wondered about this? Are we better at digesting food at a certain time of the day? Does certain meal timing perhaps help promote weight loss and improve blood glucose control? Well, this is exactly what Emily and her team at Sachin Panda's lab at the Sork Institute in California have been studying. During lockdown, I found myself binge reading the various papers that they have published as a group on time-restricted eating, or TRE, over the past five years or so, and, and knew I had to get Emily on the show to bring this information to you. We cover everything from what our circadian rhythms are, why we have them, why it's important we nurture them, what happens when we experience circadian disruption, examples of circadian disruption, such as shift work, jet lag, and social jet lag, all the way to the effect of light and meal timing on these natural rhythms. While I certainly don't want you to see meal timing as a silver bullet, 
and it shouldn't distract from the quality of the food we eat. It's certainly another very important tool that emerging science suggests we can use to our advantage. I do want to preface this conversation with a small disclaimer. While the time-restricted eating that we talk about is far from extreme, being a, a 10 to 12 hour eating window, if you suffer from an eating disorder and find the subject of meal timing in any way to be triggering, then this may not be the best episode for you, which is totally fine. You can just pick the show back up next episode and come back to this episode in the future if you feel the timing is more appropriate for you. All right, my friends, let's do this. This is me and Emily Manugian, PhD from the Sachin Panda Lab on the importance of meal timing and how we can best nurture our circadian rhythms. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. 
To get your essential eight and optimal omega plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link, which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome to, to finally be having this conversation. It's one that I've wanted to have for, for some time now. Very, very excited to, to dive into the, the world of chronobiology with you. I think that most of us, particularly on my show, most of us have an understanding of the importance of, of what we eat and definitely how much we eat, but really have much less idea or, or no, no idea in, in some cases as to the importance of our body's natural rhythms and, and how the timing of our meals affects these. So perhaps to, to sort of kick this off, why don't we start by defining what chronobiology is and, and what circadian rhythms are and, and how you personally found this field of science? Yeah, no, lots of good stuff to cover. Um, so, okay, so chronobiology is just the study of the timing of biology. Um, and probably throughout this conversation, we'll be talking mainly about circadian rhythms in humans, but I think it's important to remember that every living organism has circadian rhythms. That's because it's really a basic part of how all living things coordinate with their environment and adapt to, you know, a changing day. So your body, your, you know, plant or whatever have you can do what it needs to do to survive in the current environment. There's also many types of biological rhythms. Uh, chronobiology kind of encompasses all of them, but what we frequently talk about um, and what we're talking mainly about today are circadian rhythms. So circadian is just Latin for about a day. And so when we're talking about circadian rhythms, we're talking for about rhythms that are approximately 24 hours long. So we think it's a, it's a daily rhythm. There are rhythms that are shorter than a day. There's rhythms that are longer than a day. You know, there's annual rhythms, there's tidal rhythms, all these other things. Um, but when we're thinking about our day-to-day lives, we frequently are thinking about circadian rhythm. So I actually got into this field um, through a class I was taking as an undergrad um, called Hormones and Behavior um, with Lance Kriegsfeld at UC Berkeley. And I became obsessed with this class because I was just found it fascinating. It was super interesting. It was on hormones and neuroendocrinology. And I was especially fascinated by biological rhythms and how they regulated seasonal reproduction and all these other things. And um, I loved the class so much, I bothered him until he let me work in his lab. And I ended up staying in his lab for a couple years. And then um, that made me go into, uh, I went to go get my PhD to kind of continue my research in the field. So I started uh, through kind of more neuroendocrine and reproduction. Then my PhD was focused actually on a circadian mutant as a hamster known as duper. Um, and they had a really interesting circadian pattern and they, no one really knew why. And so my PhD was focusing on understanding that circadian mutant. And then from there, I ended up wanting to kind of apply those things to humans and say, okay, I now know a lot about circadian biology. I think it's super fascinating. Why isn't this a part of everyone knows about that we that we use? And around that time, I uh, became familiar with some of the new time-restricted eating work that, that Gene Panda was doing. And I got to meet him and we were talking and 
he said he might have a position open. And so I was like, okay. And so then, you know, after about a year of finishing up my PhD and talking to him about it, I was able to move back to California and uh, start my postdoc working with humans, studying how the timing of when we eat and get light and all those other things affect our health. So what what year was that when you made the move to to join Sachin Panda's team? That was the beginning of 2016, like February of 2016. So almost five years ago. Okay. A little while ago now. And, and, and of course, you guys have published a, a lot of papers since then, which I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring. Just to, to sort of drill down a little bit more on the circadian rhythm side of things, can you give some examples of the different rhythms so we can we can kind of sort of make sense of those and i've heard you say before which i thought was very interesting that we are practically a different person at different times of the day yeah i i like to think about it that way i think that that kind of encompasses why we need to you know we need to be a different person physiologically and i think a lot of people when you hear that, they think you're mentally a completely different person, which you are a little bit. You know, your your cognitive abilities vary across the day. Your mood varies across the day. Even your ability to edit things varies. In fact, a lot of journalists tend to work late at night because it's easier to edit for some reason later at night. Um, and I think we all kind of know we're, you know, maybe more alert or um, more moody at different times of day. It's just kind of the, the way that it goes. But if we're thinking about it, kind of like say physiologically, let's take glucose regulation as an example. So when you are asleep, your body doesn't expect you to have intake of food because you're sleeping, but you still need to be able to have glucose available for the tissues throughout your body, right? So to do that, it will naturally release glucose stores that you have into the body and it will shut down insulin secretion because insulin would normally take the glucose that you have in your blood and store it for later, right? So that's a natural way that your body can help you maintain that during the night. In the morning, that reverses. So it will then change so that now you are having more insulin secretion so you're able to regulate that um, as you get glucose coming in. So that's one very simple process. But the circadian system helps coordinate all this. So for instance, during the day, you are usually exposed to light. And light also suppresses melatonin. Well, when melatonin comes out, when it's dark, that's actually going to help suppress insulin secretion as well, which is also going to help you not need new calories coming in during the night. And so it's one of these things where it kind of prepares your body for whatever it would need to do. Um, That's kind of one example, but you could look at this at almost any other aspect of your life, like where your blood pressure regulation your body temperature regulation, any of those things are all going to be coordinated. So they're really going to prepare you for what you would need to do. Even if you look at hormone secretion, um, pretty much every hormone uh, is regulated by the time that it's going to come out. I think cortisol is a really great example where you actually get a peak in cortisol just before you would normally wake up to help you wake up for the day. And then that's going to damper back down And so you see all of these different aspects of your physiology kind of change and fluctuate to prepare your body for whatever it would need to do. So the idea is that we rely on these rhythms for good health. And when they're working properly, we're best able to maintain health, but they can become disrupted. Can you 
Can you talk me through that idea of what is coordinating these rhythms in the first place? And you kind of went there before when you when you spoke about light, but what is it from your research that you've come to understand can lead to disruption of these natural rhythms? And then what are the, the sort of implications of that? Yeah, so coordinating your clocks is really just, I mean, it's kind of what the whole circadian system is meant to do in the first place, is to kind of keep everything in the right place at the right time. So you want to be able to digest food when you would normally be eating. You want your body to be able to rest and repair digestive tracts when you're sleeping, all of those different things. And so when we say coordinating clocks, it's really making sure that all the clocks that are out through your body, throughout your body are getting the correct signal. So they're doing their job at the proper time of day. If you give conflicting cues, you can then kind of override a system and not get a proper rest or a proper fast or you know, proper sleep, whatever it may be, or you can kind of send these kind of conflicting cues. So for instance, if we're talking about sleep per se, so the circadian system doesn't make you sleep, it consolidates sleep. So there's some really cool studies that looked at if you kind of break the circadian system, it's not that you'd get less sleep, it's that it would be in random spurts throughout the day. You would have no sleep consolidation. And so you wouldn't get through a full sleep cycle, you wouldn't get the same type of restoration. So that's one example of what the circadian system is properly doing. Now, one of the ways that it coordinates those things and helps you get asleep is by also coordinating when you get light and are awake and when you get food. So you don't get these external stimuli coming in that could override the part of the, you know, significance of rest that you would get while you're asleep. So doing things like getting a lot of really bright light at night or staying up and drinking or eating really late at night, um, kind of send these conflicting cues and can stop you from being able to get that rest on a given night. Um, over time, this becomes a much bigger problem. And this kind of gets to how the circadian system is set up. So step back for just a second. So if we think about how this works internally, if you were stuck in a cave for you know months and you had no idea what time of day it was, just say you had ample access to food and whatever, um, and you didn't know the time of day, your body would still have approximately a 24-hour day. Wouldn't be exactly 24 hours. Everyone is slightly different, a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, but it's usually within about 15 minutes of 24 hours. So you don't need external cues to, for your body to be able to do this. And that's because you have a, a master clock in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Sounds complicated. It's just a geographical term for where it is. And it coordinates all those other clocks in your body. Um, and it's not like everything is in the exact same you know, part of their cycle, it's just all the phases of all those clocks are aligned. Now, we don't live in a cave. We live in a world with a 24-hour environment, which is why we really need these circadian rhythms in the first place. And so to coordinate those internal rhythms with the outside world, we take in these environmental cues like light and food. Those are really the two strongest ones that we're aware of. Exercise, social interactions also play a role, but light and food seem to be the strongest cues to reset those clocks in your body. So light is going to most dramatically affect that master clock in your brain, the SCN. And so that's really the biggest way to shift your sleep patterns, to shift your behavioral patterns. But food is really interesting because it directly affects all of the molecular clocks throughout your body. It's like an override button to the time of day that it is. And so if you get light really late, or really early or middle of the night when your body wouldn't expect it regularly, 
it's like you're constantly resetting your clock, right? Do you have a clock and you say, okay, I think I know what time of day it is. Cool. Okay. We're sleeping now. Okay. Sun just got here. I guess it's morning, right? And you, it, it, if you did it one day, it'll probably ignore it. It's a pretty robust system. But if you keep doing it or you change the time that it gets all those cues, it's like you're tra- constantly trying to reset a clock that can't instantly reset. Similarly with food, same kind of idea. If you constantly are having food at kind of erratic times of day, maybe very late or very early, and you're eating at really er- kind of erratic times, again, you're sending these really conflicting cues to the time of day that it actually is. And so when you continue to have these kind of erratic or shifting schedules, it can kind of break the clock over time because these clocks can only shift maybe up to an hour a day. And so if we have these variations of two, three hours, or you're constantly changing time zones, your body can't keep up. And eventually you'll pretty much just kind of break down the system or at least decrease the robustness of the rhythms. So I think people are probably quite aware of jet lag and have experienced that, which is, I guess, is a a very acute example of, of what you're talking about. Probably what's a little less known is more the the sort of chronic disruption that you know little being out of sync little bit by little bit each day and and how that builds up can you can you talk to that i know i've heard you talk about social jet lag and maybe we can from there we can start to to sort of pivot into time restricted feeding and some of the specifics that you found in terms of when we uh, should ideally be eating our meals yeah absolutely so yeah just like you said everyone's felt jet lag that that can, you just feel off, you know, you might ache a little even, or you don't feel quite right. That That is a feeling of circadian disruption. That is your body being forced to function when it doesn't want to function. And you're right, that's an, an acute stimulus. But there is what we refer to as social jet lag, which is the much more common thing that many of us do um, without realizing it, which is where we might not be physically traveling, but we're changing our times, usually between weekdays and weekends or on days, off days, where you might stay up an hour or two later and get up an hour or two later. You might shift your eating schedule. You know, it's a Friday night. You're going to go have drinks with friends or whatever. Well, not right now because of COVID, but say you're, you know, staying up drinking or binging a show, whatever it may be. You didn't change time zones, but your body is now being forced to stay up two, three hours later. And it's the same thing as if you had changed that time zone. And then it has to shift back every, you know, Monday. Um, Your body can't keep up with that big of a shift. So again, you're kind of forcing it out of out of phase and you get a lot of it, it leads to circadian disruption over time and i guess to to sort of frame this what are the the implications of circadian disruption like what are we talking about what would someone experience in the short term with this sort of circadian disruption that may be just creeping into their life as you say through you know changes in in, in social behaviors across the week and then what what are more of the sort of longer term health consequences of living in this state for a prolonged period? Short term, you might it might be something kind of like what you would experience with jet lag. You might feel not quite right. You might feel a little weak. You might be fatigued. Um, you might get a headache. You might not be sleeping quite well. I think sleep disruption is a pretty common one. And then, you know, sleep disruption itself can lead to a lot of negative consequences, especially acutely, you, you know, you don't feel quite well if you haven't slept well. So a lot of those things where people can live with it, and I think that's why one of the reasons it's so common is you learn to live with these little discomforts. It's not like a broken leg you have to address immediately. 
but it can build up over time. Um, unfortunately, a lot of our shift workers are essential workers. They're people we need and, you know, rely on as a community. They're really kind of the heroes of our societies, but it does do damage over time. So, you know, short term, maybe you just don't feel quite right. You get a, you lose a couple nights of sleep or something like that. Long term, there are pretty severe consequences. So it's been pretty well documented that circadian disruption, chronic circadian disruption, such as shift work, leads to increased risk for cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease. It's actually even known as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So we know that it compromises your immune system, can lead to increased inflammation. We know that it disrupts the metabolic system. Um, it's likely linked to increased weight or weight gain, or at least decrease ability to lose weight. And it kind of compromises the whole system. I like to think of it as you're kind of a worse version of yourself, right? It's like everything is just a little bit off to the point where you're constantly building up slow-term damage. Um, and so over time, this can cause a lot of problems. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the living proof longevity challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe I heard you saying at some point you were actually, and you may still be investigating firefighters. Is that right? To sort of learn a little bit more from shift workers directly? Yeah. So the study is still ongoing. We're getting close to the end. But yeah, so we we're specifically looking at if time-restricted eating might be a way to help intervene um, with that type of chronic disruption that they have to go through. They work 24-hour shifts. We cannot force them to sleep at night because someone has to be awake to help us, right? So we can't change when they're sleeping. We can't change their light exposure because if they're up and on a call, they're going to be exposed to light. But we can change when they eat. Um, And because food is such a big effector of metabolic clocks and kind of all the clocks throughout your body, except for your brain, it doesn't seem to affect the clocks in your brain as directly. Um, We think we might be able to kind of uh, decrease the burden of of this kind of chronic disruption by controlling when you get your food and try to make it so that part of their life isn't as disrupted. That's interesting. So, so that's a, a trial that's underway now. Is that what are you measuring specifically to sort of see the potential benefits of time restricted feeding? Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting in firefighters. So firefighters are a mix of very healthy and over time, very commonly not as healthy. Um, San Diego especially has a very healthy group of firefighters. Um, so we don't expect to see as many dramatic you know, health changes because if you're starting healthy, you're not going to see as big a changes. Um, this study is focusing first on feasibility. So we want to know if it's possible for 24-hour shift workers to do a time-restricted eating schedule um, and you know, not have hunger problems, not have fatigue issues or anything else that could come of that. Secondly, we're looking at a range of cardiometabolic biomarkers and variables. So basic vitals that you would normally expect, blood pressure, um, weight, height, all those kinds of kind of basic things. We're also taking blood samples so we can look to see if, you know, look at basic things like glucose regulation, um, cholesterol, those types of kind of lipids to see if we're able to see any changes over time. And again, we've, no one's ever studied this in a shift working population. So to, a lot of it is to see, is this feasible? Is it going to cause any types of harm? Um, especially if you're already starting with a healthy population, is it something that's going to hinder them in any way? Some of your other research showed the the average or typical time that someone is eating across a day is about 15 hours. Is that similar to shift workers? Depends on the type of shift work. So shift work is very interesting in that if you say, I do shift work, that could mean literally anything. Shift work just means you're working hours outside of like eight to six. Um, and when the more I kind of got into the shift work literature, because it, it is a large community that is heavily understudied because they're complicated. Um, and they usually would confound whatever variable you're looking for. And so because of that, they're usually avoided. And I'm I'm guilty of this too. I've avoided shift workers previously. Um, but they, I mean, they've been a pleasure to work with and it's, it's really interesting. But shift work could be almost anything. Um, and even the firefighters that we're working with is probably the simplest schedule because they're working a 24-hour shift, meaning their day is still mainly their day. 
and their night is still mainly their night. They're allowed to sleep on their shift. It's just if they get calls, they have to be woken up. So they're, you know, they're very disrupted sleep. They're always kind of on edge when they're sleeping because they, you know, you're on call, you're in the station. It's not the same. But that's still a lot easier than attacking people that have rotating shifts where it could be a morning shift and then an afternoon shift and a night shift or just back and forth 12 hours of night shifts and then going back to a day shift. Those get very complicated very quickly for, uh, you know, if you're talking in a kind of a circadian regulation and, and what it's really doing to them. And if you try to tell someone who's working a night shift not to eat at night because they only eat during the day, that's a pretty tricky thing to do, right? Because it's a very, you know, they'd be sleeping during the day. So then when would they eat? So it gets very complicated for certain shifts. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm thinking of a, a very good friend of mine. He works on the docks and he he's a crane driver and he's helping take the containers off the big shipping uh, cargoes that come in overnight. And, you know, that's a shift that may start around 10 p.m. and and goes until 6, 7 a.m. the entire time he's awake and then sleeping during the day. So with the firefighters, what type of time-restricted feeding protocol are you looking at? So in this study, we're doing a 10-hour eating window. Um, They get to choose which 10-hour it is. Um, We've actually found it's typically much, it's not the actual shift days that are harder. It's the off days that are the trickier thing for them. So they're on a 10-hour eating window. They get to pick whichever 10 hours they want it to be. It just has to end at least three hours before their normal bedtime, and it has to be consistent on work days and off days. Um, So they have some flexibility there. There's some people that eat a little bit earlier, some people eat a little bit later, but it's not quite as variable as people might think. Pretty much everyone starts eating sometime between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m., and then you know stops between 5 and 7 at night. And that was not by force. That just happens to be the times that people choose. Okay, let's jump into some of the the TRF, the other science that you've done, research, and then let's put a pin in this and come back to shift workers because I, I do have another question, but I'd like to do that after we go over some of your research. So time-restricted feeding, time-restricted eating, uh, I see TRF, TRE used in the literature. I'm not sure if it's interchangeable, but... Um, if, if anyone is sort of new to that terminology that we're, we've thrown around a, a little bit here, what does that, I guess, mean in, in, in simple terms? And, and how would that be different to, say, fasting, which is another word used to describe decreasing the time that you're eating food? Yeah, so time-restricted feeding was the original term coined for rodent models um, and also fly models. Once we started working with humans, the word time-restricted feeding was still around, and then we quickly found out humans don't like being told that they feed, and so we adopted it to time-restricted eating. So the way that we use it, at least, is time-restricted feeding refers to animal models, and time-restricted eating refers to human studies. There's still a fair amount of human studies that use the term feeding instead of eating, so it's still a little bit interchangeable, but that's how I define them. Otherwise, they are interchangeable, yes. Um, that's the only difference is eating usually refers to humans. Otherwise, they're the same thing. So time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting do have a lot of overlaps. And depending on what kind of intermittent fasting you do, they theoretically could be the same thing. However, there's a couple things that define time-restricted eating. So time-restricted eating is just the concept of having a consistent eating window daily that allows you to have feeding dur- during a given window of time and then fasting during a given window of time that stays consistent. And the whole idea is to be able to support your circadian system 
So your body is able to anticipate when you would be eating. You eat during that window of the day, and then it knows when you would be fasting and you stay fasting for the other period of time. So one key difference between intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating is that it's a consistent eating window. It's the same period of time every day. It's not 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. one day and then 10 p.m. to 8 p.m. the next day. That's not the idea. The idea is that it's the same, you know, however long, usually 8 to 12 hours, but it's that same window every day. The second defining factor is that time-restricted eating does not require any type of caloric restriction. Um, frequently when we look at studies, we do see that people do tend to decrease their, uh, the amount of calories that they're getting every day, but it is not an overt action. A lot of that may be due to just cutting out late night snacks or glasses of wine or that kind of thing, but we are not overtly decreasing calories. So, um, again, other types of intermittent fasting all require some type of caloric restriction at some point of the day, either acutely, like maybe you have very few calories on a given day or you're completely not eating for some days, um, time-restricted eating doesn't do that. So it's not a caloric restriction, although there may be some decrease in calories that are in overt. Um, so that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much all that it is. It's just saying you have a consistent daily eating window of eating um, and a consistent daily period of fasting um, that allows you to use food as an external cue to help coordinate your body's uh, circadian system. Okay, and in terms of the the research that you've done with with your colleagues at the Panda Lab, is that what it's called? I think I've seen people call it Panda Lab. Yeah, so Sachin Panda is the head of the the lab, so we call it the Panda Lab, which is part of Sork Institute, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the research that you've done looking at this, what what have you found in terms of the benefits of restricting the the eating hours for for humans and what have you sort of compared against what's what's average and 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 where do we start to see the benefits our lab's really kind of unique because we do have a large portion of the lab is committed to more basic science and uh, animal models as well as the clinical trials and you don't usually see both within the same lab um, so time restricted feeding um, really took off in animal models in the lab um, and so we work really closely with both sides to kind of get into some more mechanistic things on that side. In the human studies, uh, what we found so far is that time-restricted eating is very beneficial for many different cardiometabolic factors, such as blood pressure, uh, glucose regulation, cholesterol, um, and that it's feasible and people are able to stick to it. So that's kind of the take home of that. In all of the studies that we've run ourselves, um, we put people on a 10-hour time-restricted eating window. We have collaborators that have also done um, eight-hour time-restricted eating windows instead of 10. We don't do longer than that. That being said, people tend to shift a little bit outside of that. So um, when we tell people to do a 10-hour time-restricted eating window, many people are able to stick to it, but some go a little bit longer, maybe up to 11 hours is what they're actually able to achieve. And we still see that benefit. So we'll assign a 10-hour window. You might actually end up with something around 11. The exact time is not fully known. So you really kind of have to look across many different studies. And I think um, within the next couple of years, we'll really see get a much better understanding of this because there are many studies going on right now. The research that has been done in humans, not just in our lab, but in many other labs, there have been windows as short as four hours, which 
I think is excessive. I don't think you need to go that short for time-restricted eating. And a lot of the times are based off of what was done in uh, animal models. And so eight hours was the shortest in an animal model. And the reason for that was in the animal models, they were able to say, you have this many calories available to you. And this is how much you're going to eat. And animals will still eat the full amount of food within the eight hours. If you do a shorter period than that, they aren't able to consume the same number of calories. And so the nice thing was in all of those, you were able to say they had the exact same food, the exact same number of calories, and they still saw all these health benefits just by having that you know time-restricted eating window. And that was anywhere between 8 and 12 hours they saw those benefits. The only difference between 8 and 12 is if you go below 9 hours, so between 8 and 9 hours, there was an, an additional benefit in endurance in mice. But in humans, we kind of stuck with 10 because, well, one, it was kind of in the middle and you weren't exactly sure where to start to begin with. Uh, secondly, we found that humans have a, you know, on average, uh, humans eat for about 14 or 15 hours or more is their, what their natural eating window tends to be in modern society. So cutting it down to eight could be a bit drastic for some people. And 10 seemed to actually be a pretty reasonable number that people are able to actually stick to, right? And we found the most difficult thing wasn't so much hunger as social requirements. People want to be able to eat dinner with their families or breakfast with their kids or, you know, what have you. And with 10 hours, you're usually able to achieve achieve that, you know, all of the meals you'd like, or at least a majority of the meals that are important to you. So we found that 10 hours seems to still have all the same benefits that have been reported in other clinical trials with six-hour eating windows, but it's also much easier to actually maintain long-term. Yeah, and I, I think 10 hours of eating or 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours of eating, sometimes when you hear the word fasting, people can think that the concept is extreme or is restrictive. But what you're researching and, and what you're finding and this protocol in general of eating in a 10 to 12-hour window isn't really extreme when you think about the hours of the day that that is. For example, eating from... 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. or from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're talking about largely eating with the the rise and fall of the sun. Absolutely. I think it's actually a pretty mild intervention. And I think you're right. The term fasting is frequently misinterpreted as being a much more extreme form of uh, restriction than time-restricted eating really is. I think some people may be wondering about side effects or adverse effects. Is there is this something that your research or other researchers have looked at in terms of when you go from eating in a 15-hour window to, say, a 10 to 12-hour eating window, does that have any negative effects on hormones or, or other aspects of, of human health um, for you know, different types of people, men, women, different ages? Great question. Um, so again, studies are, are fairly new and most of the studies that are out um, are in much smaller populations or what we refer to as pilot studies because they're kind of the first step. So it's in these, you know, smaller numbers. Um, there have been a couple that have come out more recently in larger numbers. Um, the only time, and and it, all clinical trials have to look for adverse effects. So if there are health consequences, they have to be reported. 
Um, the only adverse effects that I've seen are fairly mild, things like hunger or irritability or headaches, and that was only seen within the six-hour eating window. I have not seen any adverse effects reported in a 10- or 12-hour eating window um, or even an eight-hour eating window. So I think, again, that's a reason why six might, you know, I, I don't see any added health benefits from a six-hour eating window, but going that short and having a much longer daily fast, especially when you're active throughout the day, um, could maybe have some uh, acute negative impacts like that. But there haven't been any serious adverse events reported in any of the studies. And with regards to sort of where you position that eating window, does that matter so much? Like, is is it better if you're waking up at 7 a.m. to be starting that eating window relatively earlier and then finishing it earlier, sort of well before bed? Or is that something that is flexible and someone can sort of play around with to best fit their lifestyle? Yeah, I think there's probably some little tweaks you can do to optimize it. Um, but that being said, just like exercise, you shouldn't exercise super late at night, but if that's the time you can exercise, exercise, you know, you should do it when you can make it work. Um, so even if it's not the perfect window of eating, I would still say having a consistent eating window with at least a 12 hour daily fast is going to be better than not. As far as trying to optimize it, I think what we've kind of seen is, and what we've seen is how people pick their eating window too, seems to kind of work is the idea of just delaying breakfast a little bit and advancing your last meal a little bit earlier in the day. So it shouldn't be anything super extreme where you wait until halfway through your day to have your first bite of food. I think that there actually is some evidence to say, you know, only, you know, binge eating kind of later in the day does have negative health consequences. If anything, you know, eating in your first half of your day does seem to be better. That being said, eating a huge amount very early or eating just very early before your body would be ready for it can be just as harmful. So very early eating, very late eating are both bad things. The compromise seems to be actually just the most natural and kind of intuitive of you should be eating really when you're active. So that usually means waiting to eat for an hour or two after you wake up. And then that's when you would have the first thing of your day eating throughout the part of the day where you're active and then stopping eating for about three or four hours before you go to bed. And if you're in bed for at least, you know, hopefully eight hours or at least at rest for eight hours, and then you don't eat for three hours before bed and you don't eat after the first hour you wake up, you're already at a 12 hour eating window. Um, And that's not a very restrictive schedule. So I'm thinking about that. And and for me, that sounds like something I I do all the time and very easy to implement. But I'm also, uh, have you spent much time in Europe? A bit. I have never lived there, but I've visited many times. Yeah. And and the culture and the sort of the meal timings tend to be a little bit different. Dinner is is much later uh, at night, and the yeah. So the the sort of period of eating is probably a little bit different. Do you think that in that circumstance that the best approach would be to just shift breakfast further up into the day if you are living in the part of the world that does have dinner very late? If you're having it, so again, I think you have to do what will work and be feasible because I don't see this as a diet. It's part of what a healthy lifestyle is, right? So it's got to be something you can actually stick to. Um, The interesting thing about 
Europe, and especially if you think about like Spain, where dinner can frequently start at nine or 10 at night. And, you know, if you go to a restaurant at eight, it's like the equivalent of going to a restaurant at 4 p.m. in the States, um, is they're actually also at different latitudes, right? So they're being exposed to sun at different times of day. They actually, it is light much later into the day there. And so their bodies are shifted a little bit. So if you look relative to their midday of sun, it's not as late as you would think. And so that's also probably what's, um, makes that a little bit easier on your body from a circadian point of view. Um, if you are going to be eating dinner a bit later, then I would say, you know, you're going to have your breakfast a little bit later too. And it's probably going to shift that whole window a bit. And I don't think that's a huge problem. I think the problem arises when you have, you know, if you're waking up, um, you know, fairly early, say between five and seven in the morning, and then you don't start eating until noon or one, um, and then, you know, maybe you're eating until, you know, 11 or 12 at night, but then, you know, you're also getting sleep deprived because when are you going to sleep at this point, right? Like um, if you're waking up that early. So I think it has to be relative to what your sleep cycle would normally be. Um, so if you're going to bed much later, if you're one of those people that's going to bed after 2 a.m. every day, then maybe it's fine to be eating dinner at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. because that's still your day. You know, you're maybe not aligned with the light as a lot of people are, but people have different relationships with light. It's actually referred to as a chronotype, which is kind of how your body's biology is related to other environmental cues, mainly light. Um, some people are delayed. You know, we frequently hear like morning lark or, you know, you're a night owl or something like that. It's heavily rooted in biology. And if you're a later type, I don't think that's a problem. I would just say I like to think of it relative to your sleep schedule more than to a clock hour. Okay, perfect. So most important thing, where possible eating within that 10 to 12 hour window, trying to have more of your calories in the front half of that that window if possible and allowing a few hours before bed of, of not having any food. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only other thing I'd add to that is just kind of the reason why we say do more calories in the first half of your day is, you know, that's when you're really using a lot of those calories because you're still active and moving around in the day. If you don't eat very much and then you get back and you have dinner and you binge eat, you know, majority of your calories and then sit and relax, then you just got this really big bolus of calories coming in that now you just have to store and you're not really able to use. Um, and so by having, you know, more calories, not all, but more calories in the part of the day when you're active, it helps your body regulate that a bit better. Sure. And you mentioned exercise before. Is exercise another external cue that is affecting these circadian rhythms? Yes. So exercise is super interesting. And the timing of exercise is really kind of a hot field right now. Um, and I'm I'm not an expert in that per se. I'm learning more about it. I think it's uh, super interesting. But exercise does different things for you at different times of day, and it does also feed back to your circadian clock. So um, it is going to change, you know, the nutrient availability in muscles, and it's going to change what your body needs, and that's going to all go back um, into the master pacemaker to kind of help coordinate the system. So exercise is also an external cue that can affect these things. Yeah. Earlier, we spoke about uh, shift workers, and. I'm I'm just thinking before we we move on because I do have a few friends who are shift workers and I had a lot of people actually message me when I have posted about time-restricted feeding in terms of the best protocol. If someone is 
is a shift worker and let's say it's more of that traditional shift work where sleep during the day, work uh, at night and up all night, should they just be looking at the similar principles of eating within a 10 to 12 hour eating window and trying to, to have most of that at the start of their sort of eating window and then still allowing for a few hours without food before they go to bed in what would be the early hours of the morning? Yeah. So I don't have a perfect answer. I think this is where the field is going and there's, there's research that I know is ongoing that will get at this a little bit better. Um, and I think it's really crucial and I wish I had a better answer. There's a couple, um, thoughts here. So one is if you, maybe you can have an eating window that moves to whenever you're active. So on your off days, you can eat during the day and on your night shifts, you eat during the night and you still get a fast in. I think that captures an aspect of it. I think your body needs a daily fast. Um, the same way your brain needs to sleep, your digestive system needs a break. Um, and so I think that is, is good. It's better than not. The other side of that is your circadian system is not expecting food coming in at that time of day. And so by eating at a different time of day, it could kind of throw your circadian system off. That being said, you're also exposed to light and you're working. So it's going to probably do some of that anyway. What I think is going to be the answer is there's two potential options. So just like you said, not eating close to sleep, I think is always good. But one thing may be to do what we call biphasic eating meaning you know, you'd have a meal about 12 hours apart. Now, regardless of what you're doing in between those 12 hours, whether you're sleeping that day or working that night or whatever it may be, that's fine, but you could still have your main meals 12 hours apart, which allows for a normal fast. And then you could have kind of this rotating meal of whenever you are awake, you have this kind of middle meal. Now, there is some cool work that was coming out of a, a group in Australia that was looking at what, what does it matter what that middle meal is? And it seems like it's actually going to get at what types of food you eat. So high carb, high you know processed food, that kind of thing seems like that's going to cause more compromised glucose regulation. Whereas if you stick to leaner, more protein, you know, nuts instead of chips kind of thing, it may make it so the glucose regulation that could be compromised because your body really isn't ready for it, that you might not have those same types of problems. So I think what we're going to see is this combination of trying to find eating patterns that could work around any shift, like a biphasic eating, or, and probably with combination of having specific types of foods that we try to eat when we have to eat in the middle of the night. And that's probably going to be a less carb, more protein heavy thing. So as to not elicit such a large glucose response in the middle of the night when your body isn't quite able to process that. So there's no firm answer yet. I think it's ongoing. And I, I really wish I had a better answer here, but it is a very complicated thing and i think that's kind of what we know so far no i think that's good and uh, as you say our society relies heavily on shift workers so there'll be a lot of people that are very appreciative that this research is is taking place you know albeit in, in its infancy now it's exciting to know that hopefully in the near future there are you know, quite specific guidelines for these people to you know, improve the quality of their life and their health so they can keep doing what they're doing for, for the community. The, the other thing I, I'd like to, to sort of quickly delve into here is the, the light cue and what our, our best sort of approach should be in terms of light exposure throughout the day to sort of best nurture the circadian rhythms. 
Yeah, so light is really cool. I I did most of my PhD on using light as as a main cue. And it, it's a cool system and your body relies on it so much because light is a constant, right? It's always going to fluctuate reliably through year to year. Um, so you see it, it as an extremely important role, for instance, like seasonally reproductive animals or animals that hibernate to know what time of year it is to change their complete physiology. It's really pretty crazy because you might have heat waves or you might have food shortages and those things don't always stay the same season to season, but light does. And so light is kind of evolved to be this master cue to all living organisms, circadian systems. So light really is very potent for our behavior and and how are you know when we sleep and all these other things. So light is is really the main main cue there as far as our behavior goes. I think you could keep it as simple as the general rule is to get as much bright light as you can. Again, in the, the first half of your day or just the active parts of your day, and then as the day goes on, to decrease that light. Your body was prepared, you know, and created really to have natural lighting cycles, right? afternoon is literally supposed to be like, you know, 12 PM is the middle of the day. Midnight was literally the middle of night, you know, um, and our bodies were meant for that. There's actually a really cool study, uh, that came out from Ken Ripe's group in, uh, university of Colorado where, um, they took people camping for about a week and they only allowed them access to firelight. And by doing that, everyone's kind of biological rhythms shifted a little bit earlier because we really disrupt what our body would expect to get light with all of this artificial light. We constantly have lights on to, you know, help be entertained or be able to work or whatever it may be later into the night. And that does shift us a little bit later, um, chronically kind of over time. And so if you didn't have light, artificial light, that's probably what your body would want. So I, I generally say, try to get as much natural light as you can during the day you live in part of the country or you know the world where you're not getting much light light boxes can be quite helpful um, to get a lot of that really strong bright light and then later in your day especially a couple hours before you go to sleep dimming those lights those artificial lights down um, trying to block blue light those can really help um, to let your body kind of get into that phase where it is ready to sleep and stop that cue from telling your brain that it's time to be awake so even though these circadian rhythms are a little bit of a, a secret, I guess, for many people. We're probably inadvertently looking after them when we do a detox off of our gadgets and get out in nature and, and reconnect. I think that's a big part of why going to nature is actually, you know, I, I think nature is good for you for so many different reasons. Like if you can, if you can afford to go camping or just be in nature for a while, do it. I think it's wonderful. Um, but yes, I think that's, that's part of it's nature's kind of, health on us is if you go camping, you're, you know, you're not getting all this artificial blue light. You're not getting out of this artificial, really bright white light that is on all the time. Cause it's, again, it's this overriding cue to say, Oh no, it's, it's time to be awake. The other kind of cool thing is, so your internal system is actually the least sensitive to light in the morning because it expects it. And it's most sensitive to light at night because it needs to know if it has to stay awake. So it gets more sensitive to light. So this artificial light has a bigger influence on us at night than it does in the morning. So we need that super bright natural light in the day and we need to have much dimmer lights at night. And it can be as something as just say you normally have two or three lights on in the room, turn it down to one or two lights, you know, just get it dimmer as the night goes on. I, 
I think the more I learned about this, I would just get into this habit of every so often just going and turning a light off and then just like you get used to it. And then every so often go turn another light off. Um, Cause you really don't need that much light. Your eyes adjust to it, but having a lot of bright light really does then kind of an overriding cue to stay awake. And so tell me on, on this topic, I, and, and I haven't gone out and purchased a pair of these yet, but there, there's a fair bit of hype around blue blockers. Is that research that you've looked at and is there benefit in, in wearing those at night? I mean, clearly from what you're saying, ideal scenario would be just to reduce screen time and get away from the gadgets. But if for whatever reason people need to be on the gadget, it's part of their job and it's a requirement, are those beneficial? Yeah, I think research is still kind of coming out on how much those can actually help you. Um, it does seem to be beneficial for some, especially for people who tend to get migraines that might be stimulated by screen use. Blue blockers can be very helpful for them. It can make a world of difference. Um, and a lot of people are doing this without knowing it. So most iPhones and actually most Androids now too, naturally will cut blue light at a certain time of day. Like they actually usually match up to outside sunlight. When the sun sets, they'll naturally change now. Um, and you'll notice because your screen comes a little bit orange, um, the colors aren't quite as bright, does help as well. I, I still think there's more going on there uh, to you know really figure out how big of an effect that has and if it's able to offset some things. Because again, a lot of screens like a computer or a phone will naturally, you can kind of block some of the blue light to help with that. Um, but TVs don't really have that. So in that case, having, you know, like the blue blocker glasses can be helpful in that way. Um, but preferably you can just hopefully decrease some of the light itself. And I, and I hope people are appreciating that it's, it's research. I know that you're not doing research directly on blue blockers, but it's research like what you're doing at the Salk Institute and what others are doing that is rapidly changing technology like you just said then in terms of making it safer for us to use and you know for many years we've probably been exposing ourselves to these gadgets with little idea about how they're disrupting uh these rhythms so very important work well so much has changed in like the past 15 years right like we didn't all have smartphones remember then like when we had flip phones or not even cell phones like I'm not that old. We didn't, cell phones weren't a normal thing when I was growing up. And even when they became normal, it wasn't a smartphone. It wasn't computers in our pockets with LED, you know, it was a really different thing. And so, yeah, I mean, very recent research has been able to change it, but even this kind of disruption that we have now of all this light coming in and all these devices that we're constantly on is super recent. You know, this is really the last decade that we've been exposed to all these new kinds of disruptors that we didn't have before. Yeah, and from a food perspective, you know, perhaps it's been a little bit longer, but if we looked at human history, we, in in many parts of the world, not all, but in many parts of the world, we have such an abundance of food now that speaks to directly to to why the the average sort of eating time is 14, 15 hours. And, you know, that that is just another form of this disruption that has come as a result of our changing lifestyle. In terms of looking forward, uh, the Panda Lab and, and the research that you're doing with your team, what are the sort of pieces of the puzzle that you're really excited by and, and still looking to, to piece together with future research? Oh, that's a great question. There's so many um, 
subtle questions, I think, that will carry large amounts of weight, even like what we were saying with like a shift work schedule, like how do you make that work? It's an extremely complicated schedule and it it might be the types of macronutrients that you're eating at certain phases, um, which might have really large consequences. I think um, for me, at least, um, one of the next things is really well, there's a few things. One, I want to understand kind of the differences between, uh, you know, culturals and uh, cultures and, and geography to see how people do eat at different times of day and how that can work and how you kind of come to different, understand those differences and how that kind of plays out. So understanding how time-restricted eating works in different groups of people, where it be regions and cultures um, with different food types. And also, I think the, probably one of the basic questions is if there's sex differences, if there's age differences, those kinds of things on not just, you know, safety, efficacy, all those, all those things are going to be really important. And then moving from there, I, I see it more as a kind of a circadian lifestyle. How can you kind of really create a healthy circadian life? Time restricted eating would be one of those components, but so is light and exercise and social interactions. And how do you create the system that is not just, well, one, figuring out what really is optimal for an individual, but making it so it's something can, people can actually stick to and being able to develop some type of program where everyone could somehow find out this is the plan that's right for me in my life right now. Um, and I think that's kind of where I'd like to get to is make it understand what, you know, if you could say, hey, what's circadian health and how do you do it? I could say, this is what it is. Here's how you can find out how to do it for yourself. I think that would be kind of the dream. Well, that's what I love about what you guys are doing and taking the research and, and translating it into information that people can use to, to better their health. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And, and let's keep this conversation open. So as new research is coming out, new findings, you can come back on and give everyone a, a bit of an update. Absolutely. That'd be wonderful. All right. And before we close this one out, if any of the listeners would like to connect with you online or, or learn more about what you're doing, where should they go? Yeah. So you can connect with me on Twitter. It's just at Emily Manugian. Um, and you can also check out my TEDx talk on YouTube. Um, and if you're interested in finding about your own circadian rhythms, you can check out our lab website at the Salk Institute or go to the mycircadianclock.org. You can download the app that we use in all of our studies. It's completely nonprofit. We developed it ourselves, so all the data is protected. Um, and you can actually log everything you eat and drink, and it will tell you what your eating window is. And if you decide to set a goal because you want to try time-restricted eating yourself, um, you can set that as well. So you can check that out at mycircadianclock.org. Beautiful. Thanks, Emily. Let's do this again. Great. Thank you for having me. This was a great, great uh, conversation. There we go, friends. I'm almost certain that most of you will walk away from this one with a better understanding of our circadian rhythms and, and how you can better nurture them to improve your overall health. Everything from your mood to your cognition and energy to your weight and disease risk. I certainly feel like this is very, very valuable information for us all. Our world is rapidly changing, but our genetics and physiology isn't. Setting up a routine that allows us to play in this modern world and enjoy it for all it has to offer while looking after these natural and ancient biological systems that we all rely on 
seems to be a key piece of the health and well-being puzzle. Personally speaking, since coming across this information, I've been eating within a 12-hour window most days, not every day, but about 80% of the time I've found it quite easy to follow. I wake up, exercise, then have breakfast. Most of my calories by the end of lunch and a lighter and earlier dinner with at least an hour of no food before dinner, but I can probably do a little better there. I may try and see if I can stretch that to two hours where possible. I've also been more conscious of bright lights at night and have certainly found that I feel more rested the next morning when I do this. If I was to appraise my routine, I would say it's not perfect, far from perfect, but remember, that's not the end goal here. It's certainly a big improvement from where I was. The idea here is that you can take this information and set up something that you can personally adhere to, and in doing so, you will derive benefit without it feeling like a burden. For some people, that might be 100% compliance and, and others 60%. The most important thing is that now you have the information, you can test and play around to see what works for you. And if you're feeling run down, out of sorts, etc., then you now have a tool to come back to. A quick audit of your lifestyle and you may realize you really haven't been looking after these natural rhythms. I'll leave you with that. If you did enjoy today's episode, Emily and I would love to hear from you on social media. You can find our handles in the show notes. Finally, if you have a spare minute and haven't left a review for the show on the Apple Podcast app, that would be greatly appreciated. It helps more people discover the episodes. Next up, I sit back down with Thomas King from Food Frontier, who was on the show back in episode 22 to talk all things cellular agriculture and plant-based protein and generally get an update from him on this rapidly growing market. I look forward to catching you then. Peace. Peace.